Good morning, Covenant College. I got a lot to share. I'm excited to share it. So let's get to it. If you have your Bibles, open to Romans 8. If not, hopefully we've got it for you up here. If you guys can advance the first slide. This is God's holy word. What then shall we say to these things? Pause. These things refer to everything that Paul has talked about in the first half of this book, Romans 1 to Romans 8, the glorious things that we're now adopted into the family of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The good news of the gospel of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Pause. It's the last time I'm going to do that. Who's the us? The us is all of us who are in Christ. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let's go home. Just kidding. I got, we got more to go. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And these truths are great and glorious and, and beyond our imagination. Father, help me today to handle your word correctly, to do no harm. Encourage our hearts with the promises of your assurance, of your love that never lets us go. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So why Romans 8? Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I'm not unique in that. Some have even said it's the most important chapter in the Bible. I don't know how you determine that. But there's a beauty to Romans 8. It begins with the words, there, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it concludes with the words, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. From beginning to end, no condemnation, no separation. And in between are these rich promises, including these from the verses just before, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In all times, in all places, God's people have struggled with doubt, have struggled with assurance to actually believe that these promises 
are true. He knows our frailty. He knows that Satan seeks to tempt us, to confuse us, to disorient us. He knows our own hearts are prone to despair and to condemn ourselves. And so the kindness of our God is to give us his word and to give us these promises. So I want to look at, oh, leave it there, please. Those, those five questions are in front of us. So give me this. If God's grand purpose is to conform us to the likeness of his son, then I would put in front of you that Satan's grand purpose is to thwart that. Or at minimum, to make us doubt that. He wants to unsettle us. He wants to cause us to doubt it. He wants to rob us of the peace and the assurance of the gospel. So let's go. Five questions. Let's start with question one here. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if the question is just who can be against us, that's easy. The world, the devil, ourselves, other people. There's a whole list of people's powers and principalities that can actually be against us. But the real question is who can effectively be against us if God is for us? And the answer is nobody. No one, no thing. If all of creation is arrayed against us over here and God is here for us, God wins. It's just the truth that God is for us and there was never a time that he was not for us. He can't stop loving us because he never started loving us. Bear with me for a second on this. But before there was time and space, night and day, revolutions around the sun, God in his eternal purpose set his love upon us. He loves us. He is absolutely for us, and there was never a time that he wasn't. But how can we trust that that is true? Why is God for us? We break the news to you. God's not for you because of you. And that's good news. He's for you because of what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. If he's for us because of us, that's awfully scary. Because I screw up every day. And so he may be for me today, but maybe he's not so much for me tomorrow because of what I've done. But when he's for me because of what he's done for me, because of him setting his love upon me for all time, then I can trust that he is really for me. The other reason I can trust that he's for me is question number two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Why can we ultimately be confident that God is for us? Because he gave us the thing that is most precious to him. He gave us the thing that was most costly. So he's not going to stop there. He's going to keep going. He will see us to the finish line. A few years ago, my wife and I and our kids all went out west. We planned this big trip to Utah and Arizona to see all the different national parks. And we spent months planning this trip. We mapped out our route. We figured out how many nights and days we'd spend at each 
park. We've made reservations at hotels and Airbnbs. We even reserved our mules for going down into the canyons. Bought our airfare, reserved our van, and headed out. We got there, got in our rental car, checked into our hotel, had a fabulous meal, and headed out to Zion National Park. And we pulled up to the entrance, and the park ranger said, all right, you need to buy a pass. It's 80 bucks. It's, a, it's good for a year. You can go to any park you want for a year. And I said, $80? Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. And I backed our van out, turned around, and drove back to the airport, and we flew home two weeks early. No, I didn't do that at all. Just... <laughs> That, you're all like, that dude's crazy. That's, that's ridiculous. As ridiculous as that is, that's how ridiculous for us to think that God would give up his son. Eternity in planning, the most costly thing, and then not take us all the way home. I sometimes fear that we, I know that we underestimate God's love for his son. We all memorize John 3.16, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But I don't think we, we, we just can't imagine how much he loves his son. Think about the person you love most in the world. Mine's here. Sorry, Will. <laughs> and the grief that I would feel if I were to lose her, that is infinitesimal to the amount of love, the type of love, the depth of love, the intensity of love that the father felt for his son. Therefore, it only stands to reason when he gave up his son, the intensity, the infinite sorrow and grief that he felt, never having known a day without, eternal fellowship broken, that type of grief. That's how we know that he'll give us all things if he's already given us that which costs the most. Looking at the next two questions together, who shall bring any charge? Who is to condemn? Paul moves us from this relational world into the, the judicial world. In a lot of ways, it's similar to the first question. Who can be against us? Yeah, just about anybody and everything. Who can bring a charge against me? Who can condemn me? We'd be here for a long time. I've got a long list of people that I've sinned against in my life. The people that know us the best know our worst. Our enemies, Satan, ourself. But same thing with question number one. It doesn't matter. And I'm not talking about sin flippantly here. I'm just saying, it doesn't matter. God is the judge and also the justifier. There's no court of appeal above him. His decision is final. And his decision is you're free. All of our charges, all of our condemnation have been taken by Christ. The one who died, who was raised who sits in the place of honor at God's right hand and who intercedes for us. I want to focus on two things just real quickly here. First, 
Jesus has taken every single ounce of our condemnation. Do you believe that? And he's given us his righteousness. We're free now. We're free always. No double jeopardy here. We cannot be retried for our sins. He's already paid the price. His blood satisfied divine justice. It counters every single charge, past, present, and future. I like to think of this verse as a, as a scene, like a courtroom, like a great courtroom drama. God is there in the judge's seat, and Satan is there as the prosecutor. And there's Christ on the stand and the Spirit next to me as my advocate. And as Satan hurls his fiery darts, as he hurls his accusations, and almost every single one of them are true, the Spirit simply points at Jesus. What about his anger? What about his jealousy? What about his idolatry? His immorality? His selfishness? The blood covers it all. No charge can stick. I don't want to be flippant. Sin is to be taken seriously. But I want to ask you this. Does your response to sin, your sin, drive you closer to Jesus or farther? There's a big difference between having a godly conviction for our sin, repenting and reconciling with our brothers and sisters we've sinned against, or responding to our sin with a self-loathing and a despair that makes us run from Jesus. One is godly and right, one is not. Secondly, I want to give us this confidence. The Trinity has been involved with this plan for, for, forever, from eternity past. They're the only ones, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God three in one, are the only ones who could ever condemn you. And they've been a part of this rescue plan all along. God knew everything about you when he placed his love upon you. Jesus is at the right hand continually interceding for you. The Spirit lives within you, praying for you, praying with you, perfecting your prayers to the Father. They've always known you. They've always loved you, which takes us to the fifth question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's making clear here that Nothing can change God's love for us. Nothing can separate us. No one, no thing, no circumstance, no power. Look at this list. Again, no list of adversities, no list of adversaries can separate us from the love of Christ. And Paul's own experience confirms this. He has experienced every bit of suffering that's up there, including the way he died. And yet he was convinced of the perseverance of God's love for him. Christ told us, in this world you will have trouble. Sometimes we experience really hard things and we think, could God really love me? Would he let me go through this if he actually loved me? But if we go back to his words, 
He told us, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. God's promise is not that suffering will never afflict us. It's that it will never separate us from his love. Suffering has always been the lot for God's people. It doesn't reflect his judgment upon us. It actually establishes where we stand next to God, being targeted by the enemy as well. Suffering is actually evidence of our union with Christ, not a case for doubting his love. When we are in him, we're joined to him, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection. He is the big S, big C, suffering conqueror. We're the little brothers, little sisters, who also triumph through our suffering. We're more than conquerors. And through it all, we're becoming more and more conformed to his likeness. Paul spends more time on this particular question than the other ones combined. And why is that? I would put forth, it's the one we struggle with the most. We can give assent to the other four. We can talk the courtroom language. But I think it gets to the crux of our deepest fear. Will he always love me? I often struggle to trust that that's true. I think we've been conditioned for too long by our experience of conditional love. We put God in a package and we expect that he's going to love in the ways that we have loved and been loved. We limit God to this imperfect love. But God does not love like we do. His love is not fickle. It doesn't change based on our behavior, based on our response to his love, based on our performance in the day-to-day. It's constant, it's unchanging, and it's true. And it always will be because that's who he is. But Satan doesn't want us to believe that. He wants us to fear that God's love can be yanked away at a moment's notice. He wants us to believe that God's love has limits, that God's love has an expiration date, that God's love has a finite capacity, and once we reached it, he's done with us. Brothers and sisters, that is a damnable lie from the pit of hell from the chief accuser. It is never, ever true. It's his chief tactic, and it always has been. His first words in the garden were, did God really say? He's been sowing doubt from the beginning. And you know why? He can't change what is true and lasting. He can't change that God is for us. He can't change that I'm no longer condemned. He can't separate me from God's love. So what does he strive to do? To make me doubt it. It's an effective tactic. He's really good at it. 
and I can't fight it, and you can't fight it on your own, but the great news is you're not on your own. As we already said, the triune God is for you in all this. But learn from the example of Jesus when faced with the accuser. What did he respond with? Word and prayer. The promises of God and the undying affection of his Father. So, why can we trust all this to be true? Let's walk it back. We'll never be separated because Christ was. We'll never be condemned because Christ was. Why is God for us? Because of what he has done for us in Christ. Lots of things can separate me from my love of Christ. That's a whole other chapel of things I could list for you all. Nothing can separate me from the love that he has for me. This has never been about my grip on him. It's always been about his grip on me, and he simply never lets go. Because of what Christ did on the cross, God is for us. If you take nothing else from today, take those four words. God is for us. Say it with me. God is for us. Again, God is for us. Look to your neighbors. Say, God is for you. Close your eyes. Close your eyes and say this. God is for me. Get in the habit of saying it to one another saying it to yourself, saying it together. It's how we fight the evil one. It's how we fight the doubt. So, last thing. This is good news. Assurance is rich and true, but we don't just sit in it. What's the purpose? What's the ultimate goal of our assurance? It's to live boldly, to love others well, to live a saved life instead of a safe life. I've been thinking about this concept of safe versus saved, even though the root words are the same, they're so different. The world wants us to live a safe life, to have a good retirement package, a good job, to be comfortable. A saved life is not what Christians are called to. Our assurance of salvation ought to push us. Confident that God is for us, that we might boldly go wherever Christ leads us. In 1904, William Borden graduated from high school and his parents gave him a trip around the world. I got luggage, I mean, no big deal, but sorry mom and dad if you're watching this, it's great luggage. This guy got a trip around the world in the course of this trip, from continent to continent, country to country, his heart became burdened for those who didn't know Jesus Christ. He returned from this trip around the world, enrolled in college, and in the course of his time in college became more and more convinced that he was to be a missionary. It's a beautiful story. It's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? William Borden was the heir to the Borden dairy fortune. He was already a millionaire. And he was saying... No, I'm going this way. 
He finished college. He went to seminary after seminary. He said, I want to go and, 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 and minister to Muslims in China. So he boarded a ship and went to Cairo for Arabic studies with the intent to learn the language so he could minister in China to Muslims. Within one month of his arrival, he contracted spinal meningitis and died within days. 25 years of age, does the world look at that story and say, that doesn't make sense. Why would you say no to that and do this? And how tragic you're dead at 25. William's life was not a safe life, but a saved life. An assured life, confident that God was for him, and he was able to choose a path counter to the world's wisdom. In confidence that he was secure in Christ, secure to love others with God's love. How about the Apostle Paul? He's 60 years old when he's writing this letter. He's been shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, flogged so many times, and he's getting ready to go to Spain and do it all over again. 60-some years old. Why? He's convinced that nothing can separate him from the love of God. He's convinced that the saved life compels him to keep going and keep sharing the love that he didn't deserve, but knows is real. Now, you don't have to die young or be a missionary to say you've lived the saved life. So don't hear that. An assured life, a saved life, you can pursue with whatever callings you have right now that you're preparing for. Do it in the confidence of God's love for you safe in whatever you're choosing to do. But my prayer for you is that you understand there's a particular discipline to living a saved life. There are no shortcuts, no life hacks, only life habits. Hmm. i ask you a question. When was the last time you memorized a Bible verse? Life habits are developed over time. There are no shortcuts. There's no microwave discipleship. Only big green egg, slow-cooked discipleship. Spending time in the means of grace, in the word, in prayer. I'm offering you guys a challenge. Um, because I'm doing it myself. My goal is to memorize all of Romans 8 this academic year. If I love this chapter so much, why haven't I hidden it in my heart? If you want to join me in that, send me an email. Let's hold one another accountable. Let's encourage one another with our progress. But I put that in front of you just as an opportunity to hide the word in our hearts so that when the, the, the doubts come, we have the response ready. And one last word on William Borden. When Williams Borden's belongings were shipped back from Cairo to Chicago, his parents, his family found in his belongings his Bible. And in his Bible, in the back, three dates had been entered. The date that he decided to become a missionary, the date that he boarded the ship, and then just a couple days before he died. And by each of those dates, 
with those words. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. That's the saved life. May the assurance that God is for us give us confidence to live saved lives over safe lives. In whatever calling we pursue, loving others with the same love with which we have been given. Let's pray. Father, for those things that we know not, please teach us. For those things that we have not, please give us. And for who we are yet not, please make us. We ask with confidence in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.